Hello, and welcome to the Library Coven, a bi-weekly podcast in which two bookish besties discuss mostly YA fantasy through the lens of intersectional feminist criticism. Why? Because talking about books is pretty magical. I'm Jesse, And I'm Kelly. This week, we're discussing Foul Lady Fortune by Chloe Gong. This book has a very large cast of characters, but we mostly follow Rosalind, a Chinese nationalist spy slash assassin, as she goes undercover with Orion to learn about a plot involving Japanese imperialists and possibly Chinese communists. And Rosalind is basically immortal, so chaos ensues. (laughs) Super spy vibes. Super spy vibes. Initial reactions. Do you want to go first? Sure. So like typically spy novels or shows or movies aren't like my go-to because, you know, as an anarchist, these like I usually usually a lot of these offerings are like super into the state and super like pro-imperialism, like woot woot. And I'm like, fuck that, obviously. But this book is not that. So I was delighted. I thought that like Gong really digs deep for like nuance and character development and world building. And she like resists easy answers of like good guys, bad guys. You can tell she's done her research and I needed to find out what the heck was going on. So I kept going back and was like reading, trying to be like, okay, what, what happens? What happens? Twist after twist. What about you? What'd you think? I listened to the audiobook uh, of this, which was narrated by Emily Zhu sorry Emily Wu Zeller and I'd give this book 4.5 stars for sure I really enjoyed spending time with Rosalind who is very fleshed out main character some of those side characters POVs felt like unnecessary and it was weird to switch to their POVs because most of the time we're with Rosalind Mm -hmm. but I'm guessing they might become more central to the story in the second book because this is a duology I also really love seeing Shanghai in the 1930s because so much of the media we consume about that time period is really focused on the U.S. and then sometimes like on the U.K. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Awesome. Recommend if you like. I put Dread Nation Duology by Justina Ireland just because it's like a historical fiction setting but with like a supernatural and or magical and or scientific element and it's like a badass duo kicking butt so that's that's the one that came to mind for me um i said captain america like literally any of them uh the first one is obviously set in the 1940s but like super soldier serum living forever kind of vibes going on totally and i love him so there you go watch captain america (laughs) Winter Soldier might actually be the best like comparison here. So yeah, I was thinking Bucky Barnes the whole time. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Or like Wolverine. (laughs) Anyone who's like experimented on against there without consent, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, Why did we choose this book? We were sent these violent delights, the these violent delights duology by the publisher, and Foul Lady Fortune was also sent. Correct. Mm Mm-hmm. So we wanted to review the more recent offering of Gongs. So thanks for sending these. And yeah, we'll dig into it. Yeah. Um, Time to talk world building in Through the Wardrobe. So obviously, as you mentioned at the top, this takes place in 1930s China, specifically Shanghai and surrounding areas, um, with conflict between nationalist, communist, Japanese, imperialist, Uh, all different factions and then also like gang activity that it seemed like a lot of Russians were involved um, in the gangs. And there was a little like 
hint towards or like a, a wink at like Romeo and Juliet, it seemed like because of these like star crossed lovers things in the first the guy was named Roma and the girl was named Juliet, but they died. So I think are those the people from the first from the first duology? That was my guess. Oh, I'm not sure because I haven't read those. I didn't think they were connected, but I'm not sure. I think they are connected. Like that is like this this series, this duology, I think picks up after those left off because yeah, those were like slightly beforehand. So just so you all know out there, you can read this series without knowing what happened in the first series. Yeah. There's actually a really great author's note at the end. I'm curious if it was in the audiobook. Yeah, it was. Yes, we'd love to see it. Thank you for listening to us even though you didn't hear us because you don't listen to this podcast <laughs> publishing people but yeah there was a great author's note at the end that like briefly describes the geopolitics of the moment and uh, also like makes note of where the author was like i made this fictional and this fictional and this fictional so highly recommend checking that out but i i thought that that like the world was like super fleshed out everything from like the food to the technology to the dress to the like interactions between people And just like zeitgeist, you know, a little flappery sort of thing. But yeah, I thought it was, it was really immersive. Yeah. And something that um, I just forgot to put in notes, but kind of goes along with that, is that you mentioned that there were like Russian gangs as well, but there are a lot of people in Russian, in Russia who are ethnically Asian. Um, So like that inclusion was also nice to see, because I don't feel like that's something like we really talk about um, when we talk about the people who live in Russia or, or like the surrounding countries is that there are a lot of ethnically Asian people there who, you know, are fluent. I see them on TikTok, especially like they're fluent in Russian. They don't speak Chinese or any Mm -hmm. of the Chinese languages. Um, So it was kind of cool to like have that in there because I feel like it's something like especially from a U.S. perspective, we don't really like talk about or know about. Heck yeah, you're learning me, IRL. (laughs) I love that. Amazing. That's so great to know. I mean, like, obviously it makes perfect sense when you say it to me. I like feel so silly not knowing that. (laughs) But yeah, I thought this book was like really digging into propaganda's role in warfare and just politics and just like shaping public opinion and how important it is. Is like showing in this fictional setting that controlling access to information is, you know, that's one of the facets of this whole knowledge is power sort of cliche. And it was cool to see it in the 1930s when, you know, it's about almost, oh my God, almost a hundred years later. Can you believe it? (laughs) Almost 2030, not that far away from 2030 people. Oh God. I know. Right. But yeah, just to be in such a different media landscape now with like all the different technology in the 24 hour cycle, but also to see that like the seeds of this were already there, you know, back in the day. Yeah. It was always happening. It just happens at a much faster rate maybe now. And it's, I think it probably is um, a little, maybe more difficult now to like combat mis and disinformation um, mm-hmm. because like we don't know when something's AI like created or it's can be difficult to tell when something's been heavily edited. Mm-hmm. And I guess that is the role of the fifth estate. So like the power of the people to hold newspapers and officials accountable. So yeah. People power. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Something I found really interesting was the discussion of Japan's influence slash attempted influence um, in China during this time. So we saw this a bit in the Poppy War, which I think takes place way before <laughs> the 1900s. But I feel like it's not something we really learn about in a U.S.-based education system, or like not all of us do. I'm sure some people had better schooling than I did. Um, <laughs> or so, me. 
<laughs> um, so we see almost this like McCarthyism happening in China, China, where the government is trying to root out not only communists, but also people who are accomplice accomplices in Japan's imperialism. So this was just like a really interesting thing to see because like the Poppy War takes place so far before this. And then like if we go from the Poppy War to 1930s, it's like, oh, there's this very long history of Japan, like influence in China or trying to, you know, be an influence in China and that sort of thing. So I just thought that was really cool to see because it's just not something we see very often. I, I just looked up when the the Nanjing massacre was because I know that that's what was the Poppy War was fictionalizing. Um, mm-hmm. And I didn't know when it was. And it's from 1937. So oh, damn. Think, okay. Well, I'm just super wrong. <laughs> well, but, but I do think that like the Poppy War totally gives a vibe about like this is happening back in the day, you know, and it's just fictionalizing that. But, but yeah, so this would be like, how the Japanese influence started and it was yeah I appreciate it was like a little history lesson in there honestly Mm -hmm. like I know that it's a fiction book but you're still learning about like the role of Manchuria and the role of like why that's important geopolitically because Japan had already quote-unquote conquered or shall we say invaded the Korean peninsula and so it's coming from that direction down south yeah you're you're right that like or in our western educational systems you get taught about like the like Western imperialism, European imperialism, but, but imperialism is something that anyone can do no matter where they're from. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like in like our Western perspective, we learn about three things about Asia and that is Chinese exclusion act, Japan's part in world war two, and then Mm -hmm. the Japanese internment in the United States of American citizens. And those are like the it, like we don't get like a history lesson on those places or like why these things happen or what caused any of the, you know, like so, or our role in any of those things. Yeah. So I appreciate like the little history lesson. And I think it's like cool to add into a fictionalized story. Let's discuss all things magic. So I think like the, the main element that is like, fictional in the story is like the super soldier serum and this idea has been done a lot in i'm thinking like blockbuster hollywood style like mainly marvel and dc it seems like this is a big superhero trope but like the setting and space time and like the characterization that gong all chooses really for me made it like fresh and intriguing i wasn't worried about this being like eh, boring you know like if I don't know, Marvel will to be like, here's another super soldier story that <laughs> like, I'd be like, all right, I probably can guess what these beats are, but it definitely um, kept me guessing this, this book. Yeah. I would say like the, the space is unusual for like what we get in like our Western pop culture, but the time is not super unusual. Mm. Cause this only like predates Captain America by about like 15 ish years because the point of him is to like help defeat Nazis and also work as like propaganda against um, the Nazis and you know mm-hmm. to spread the idea that we're doing like this really good thing or whatever um, so I think like the space that it's in is more unusual than the time that it's in fair point I was also expecting way more fantasy elements to the story um, because it's often marked as fantasy but I would say it's like closer to science fiction because like you mentioned it's like super soldier serum and it's not like they don't have like magical powers so I just I was just expecting more fantasy elements than were there. Totally. Maybe this is like a a marketing thing. People I think like fantasy, quote unquote, more than science fiction, so probably easier to sell. <laughs> 
for me it's like squarely in speculative fiction not that like any of these genre terms like really matter at the end of the day but like they're interesting for how they get like marketed to people because it's like asking this what if question it's taking like historical space time and situation and then being like what if there was a super soldier serum how would that change things in science fiction theory it's called the novum the n-o-v-u-m the novum is like this is the one element that i'm going to throw in there and make it a little spicier in my in my story but but yeah i would i would agree that you know, i was expecting fantasy and that's not what we got and that's totally fine yeah also, this doesn't have anything to do with the magical world, but I forgot to mention that Emily Wu Zeller, who not narrated this book, uh, the audiobook, also narrated The Poppy War. And when I started reading it, I was like, oh, this sounds really familiar. And then I went and like looked through her catalog. Also, she's narrated a lot of stuff and she's great. So many, so many. But books. yeah, I just forgot to mention it earlier. <laughs> And on that note, we're going to talk about conflict villain and good versus evil in Get Me Kylo Ren. All these double and triple agents keeping things spicy. I'm like, how do they not confuse themselves living this life that is like a nesting doll of fictions that they have I was to like confused. <laughs> put together. I was like, how do you guys do it? The emotional labor is astounding. The quantity. Which is funny because there's like real people out in the world doing this right now. <laughs> like <laughs> there are people who are like double, triple spying agents. That's how they live their life. Like I cannot imagine. I hope that when they retire, they have time to go to therapy because I can only imagine how much like damage to your psyche you would be doing by like living these like triple existences. I don't know. Yeah. Couldn't tell you. Couldn't tell you. It's not me. That's too complicated for me. <laughs> I barely can move this flesh sack about without my triple life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There were, okay, so many twists. Did you see the Orion twist coming? Nope. <laughs> Did you see the Phoebe twist coming? Not at all. <laughs> I was like, what the hell? Just surprises all around. And it wasn't in like a, oh, this seems like a cop out sort of way. It was like a, oh, this, this seems like it jives with where the story is going. Yeah. I accidentally saw Hello Phoebe, the like last page of the book. Oh. <laughs> Hello Priest or whatever. So I was like, oh, Phoebe. Phoebe's into stuff. I think I saw that when I was like halfway through. Oh, and so okay. then I was like, oh, Phoebe. Nice part about an audiobook, you can't accidentally spoil yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I used to do that all the time. I used to read the last page of a book all the I time. Know. I don't anymore, <laughs> but I used to. <laughs> Too impatient for my own good. Okay, so we're talking about villains and evil and shit. And so, like, imperialism, obviously. Yeah. I would also say that, like, there's some economic injustice going on that makes it to where certain factions are willing to ally themselves with powerful outsiders or, like, authoritarian-style, I don't know, groups. There wasn't as much exploration of that, it didn't seem like, because we were mostly, like with people who have the resources of the state and or the communist party and or the Japanese state. But I, I think that this was also at work kind of moving things around subterraneanly. We had the evil mom for a change instead of like an evil dad, but also Orion's dad also did seem kind of evil. So yeah, I feel like we get like evil mom trope every once in a while, especially with books that take place like outside of our place and our time. Like I'm thinking yeah. Ember in the Ashes, Kingdoms of Souls, like 
Not mm-hmm. ones that take t- t- place in our present day, but one that take place like well before the 1900s. Like technology right. is like nothing. Um, then we get like an evil mom, but it is unusual, I think, for like a time and a place that some people alive today could still remember. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's almost like a swing from that like Disney all moms are dead sort of vibe to, I don't, I don't know, like it, it seems like creators are less interested maybe in exploring that in the books that we've been reading but yeah a lot of evil dads more often yeah 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 there's probably something there about like not having a mom being very like bad for you or something and people are trying to move away from that because it's just not the case but uh yeah it's nice to see nice to see an evil mom even though like i'm like bro what are you doing (laughs) women can be evil also (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. anyone can anyone can Equal opportunity evilness. Okay, let's do one does not simply. We don't have a whole lot in the section. Um, I feel like it kind of, we have a lot in shipwreck that maybe we would, that could blend in. Yeah. We have Celia, Rosalind's sister is trans. And that's just like incorporated into her character and storyline, which I think is great. It wasn't like a whole thing, but it also wasn't, not a thing yeah it was you know it was like striking a balance right yeah i guess is what i'm trying to say very ineloquently (laughs) (laughs) and we also had like what seemed like gender parity among the agents in the field on all these different sides but it did seem like the superiors more often than not were men which like if it's historical fiction i guess we can make sense right you're not completely retconning yeah i don't know feminism into the 1930s or whatever yeah which is fine but it often like also like people are like what the hell's going on here so i think we can just like move into shipwrecked because a lot of shipwrecked also goes with one does not simply so shipwrecked Mm -hmm. let's go (laughs) let's do it there were some descriptions of Rosalind that made me think that maybe if she were in 2023 or 2024, because that's the year right now. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Potentially would call herself ace or on the ace spectrum, demi or gray, just because there's, there's passages where she talks about like not wanting to bang a person that she sees on the street corner, which I also yeah. think like is great. Like mm-hmm. if you want an emotional connection then, and to actually trust the person, like, that's great too i feel like that's also completely normal yeah and i think it also like pushes back and i don't know if chloe gong was thinking this like when she did this but it kind of pushes back on like this sexual exoticization of like asian women that i think we see like in our present day like i can't speak to what was going on in the 1930s but it's a good like thing to add in there also because i think we see it also with like you know oftentimes we'll have like an ace or demi or gray like black moving character like main character and like kind of pushing back against the like sexualization of like minority women of color so i always think that's nice to like add in there totally i loved these moments where orion and phoebe were just like going like a tete-a-tete like just their banter or whatever about stealing each other's girlfriends and boyfriends and so (laughs) that's how we get the information that they're like bi pan queer whatever I thought that was nice that it was just like sprinkled into the story as just like a totally normal thing. And that's fine. Yeah. The dad does try to like weaponize that against Orion when mm-hmm. he's like talking with Rosalind about how he's like about how, oh, Orion's like such a slut. Basically, I mean, he doesn't say that. But so we had like a little moment of, you know, 
anti-bi or anti-pan or anti-queer moment but from a character that we would expect it from and in a situation that we would expect it to appear in but it wasn't like i don't know this malingering cloud overhanging everything like it wasn't the point of the story wasn't to just like discuss this sort of thing fake relationship that was our main our main ship and i'm just like wondering you are like kind of a romance expert at this point i would say i'm a bit more of a novice or intermediate (laughs) what makes this so good because it really is so good it's okay let me also point out it's not just a fake relationship it's a fake marriage and there's only one bed like (laughs) it's just okay so there's more and more tropes going on here (laughs) yeah yeah. i don't know i think there's something about like about the fake relationship often i would say that the two people aren't exactly like friends already they like or sometimes they're like enemies i feel like a lot of time the faker relationship is like they're enemies they don't want to do this but they have to for a specific reason and i think it's like really fun to watch two people who think they don't like each other because they don't know each other very well just like fall head over heels for each other yeah i don't know what it is i think it just like romanticizes relationships more generally um in such a big way uh, and like it's it's not just like the fake relationship then it's also forced proximity which people also love so yeah I don't know what it is but I also love it it's one of my favorite tropes I would say in this we also have like grump and sunshine we're like Orion sunshine and Rosalind is grumpy so it just like ticks a lot of romance boxes for tropes I would say for readers that like this isn't a super romantic fantasy or a romanticy mm-hmm. <laughs> as they call it now <laughs> do they I've never heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it does have like little sprinkles of romance throughout, which is fun. I also wonder just about like the the whole fake relationship, forced proximity, different things that you're you were you were mentioning all these tropes and I'm like, yep, it has that one, it has that one, it has that one. Like done in a way that was fresh and fun. I also wonder if it's like a people are more permissioned almost to be themselves when they're like, this isn't real. So like the stakes are lower maybe. Mm -hmm. And so people can like let their guard down and then it sneaks up on them when they have like, when they catch actual feelings, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I know, (laughs) but it's fun and I love it. So as long as there's no like pregnancy or actually that's my only one. Oh, no cheating. No, I don't really love a miscommunication trope, but this Mm. one is full of all good tropes. (laughs) we also kind of have phoebe and silas like i think they're like low-key in love with each other and i hope in the next book like they end up together because they're super cute silas is like hardcore pining so <laughs> i so, love it so hard <laughs> yeah it's so cute i'm rewatching sex education with my partner because he'd never seen it before and oh. so it's giving me like a little bit of like Otis and Ruby vibes where oh, he's yeah. like carrying her purse, yeah. you know, sort of thing because he is like following her around like a puppy and it mm-hmm. does like, that also gives me, that's, that's the energy that I feel like this ship is bringing a little bit. Yeah. That, that's spot on. <laughs> okay. Killing our darlings, writing style, narration, characterization, plot structure, et cetera. There is a sequel to this duology. Foul Heart Huntsman came out last year in 2023. <laughs> Don't know when I'll read it, but I wouldn't be opposed to reading it because I kind of want to figure out what happens. And I love that it's like a duology and not like an unending eight series, eight book mega series. You know what I mean? Yeah, except I think that there's like a um, 1.5 that the, the publisher also sent us. 
two captivating new novellas surrounding the events of Foul Lady Fortune and following a familiar cast of characters from these Violet Delights. So I guess there's a 1.5 maybe for this. Called Last Violet Call. Is that what that was? Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, I like how st- when like an author can give us like a narrative, like an, a successful arc that's wrapped up in a few books, but then they, you know, obviously have all the permission in the world to go back and like wedge yeah. some stuff in. Uh, and then it's nice that that's there for people who want it, but it's not like required to enjoy yeah. the story world, you know? Yeah, I agree. I really loved how Gong incorporated Chinese and Russian. Um, I thought that the, she used context clues super effectively and as a non-speaker of both of those languages it was easy for me to suss out like okay this word is doing this in this context you know and it was but I I thought that was well done yeah I would agree I also wanted to ask you like where we are with young versus and slash as new adult (laughs) because like Rosalind is 19 and frozen at 19 so technically she's like older or probably you could potentially say exponentially older because she had this hella traumatic thing happen to her and she's like grieving or whatever and then orion's like early 20s we think and we don't know if he's not aging that wasn't clear to me whether or not that was like a part of his super serum symptoms or whatever but yeah so it's like this book is getting marketed as young adult and it has characters that are kind of in this what we would call the old new adult like age range you know what i mean and obviously it, it can it's a book that, you know, young readers and older readers can enjoy. But I just wanted to get your your take on this since you yeah. have I don't know, you're like right in the middle of it. You're looking at the whole <laughs> landscape from where you are right now and your studies and stuff. Yeah. I'm not sure it's so much about like the age of the characters as it is about like reading level slash maturity of the story and or assumed interest. Like we see books with very young characters written for adults. I'm thinking of the book Room, which I haven't read or Ender's Game, or picture books that are about an adult, but written for like little kiddos. So I think it's less commonplace to see books with older characters written for teens in my experience. But I think young adult books also have to contend with the fact that many adults are reading them too. So I don't think it's unusual. Like, I understand why they're doing this. And this feels very young adult to me like the story does um i feel like new adult is usually and almost always like romance books and the people are the characters are in this part of their life where they're new to being an adult so they're like moving out on their own they're going to college like having those first adult experiences which is not really what we see in this book like rosalind does live on her own but she also has that like parental figure with i think the woman who lives near her is lao lao yeah yeah um so i feel like this like it it feels young like if they just told me those that rosalind and orion were like 16 17 i'd be like yeah sure i believe that (laughs) so i think it's like a mix of it all new adult is mostly just romance books we don't see a lot of books written for that age range and like rosalind is still a teenager um and so there are going to be a lot of teens who are like oh yeah i remember what this is like or i'm having these kinds of experiences or whatever so i think it's more about like maturity than it is about like character age There you go. You heard it here. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I think we both have an item for real talk here on the agenda. Would you like to go first? 
Yeah, I don't get why Rosalind pretends to sleep every night. Like, I'm not saying she shouldn't rest, but like, why would you lay down for hours on end when you don't need to? There is no way in hell I would just lay there in my thoughts for like eight hours. And I know she like kind of has to pretend because of Orion, but like, they're not sleeping in the same bed. I would be like up doing art projects or like having fun with my hobbies or, you know, whatever. Because I was like, I cannot imagine doing this. That sounds terrible. It was a weird part of the story. (laughs) So like 24 hours in a day, a third of it you spend sleeping. That extends the amount of time that you could like read books or do art or I don't know, do whatever by a third. And that's a ton over a lifetime when you think about it, even though like immortality is like basically a curse. But so they say, (laughs) so they say, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) I could get through my TBR if I had all that time. (laughs) Exactly. I just did that was just like the weirdest thing to me of this story it was the most unbelievable part of the whole thing (laughs) (laughs) not that there are super soldiers the fact that someone would pretend to sleep for eight hours like just laying there in their thoughts there's no way in hell (laughs) nary a podcast to listen to Uh -uh. not an audiobook in sight no (laughs) couldn't do it and you just have to lay there and meditate a man the mental strength that you would have yeah couldn't be me Towards the end of the book, we get this, like, saving others versus yourself framing Orion to Rosalind because it's at the point when, like, they haven't quite met the evil mom yet. No, they have met the evil mom. And they're trying to get away from everything. And Rosalind is, or Orion's been, like, wiped clean or turned into whomever. The Winter Soldier. (laughs) The Winter Soldier. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And on page 472, he says to her, this is probably then before his memory was wiped. You cannot save the world. You can save one thing if you must, but it is enough if that one thing is yourself. And I'm just kind of like, I understand this and I'm starting to realize it in my personal existence as like, you know, overgiving or like saviorism or whatever is like something you got to interrogate and rein in. And at the same time, I think it's like a bit of a dialectic going on because like collective responsibility is also important, like accountability to other beings on the planet. You know, I think it can like stray, this framing can like stray into like responsible bootstraps sort of territory pretty quickly. Um, I don't think that's necessarily what's happening here, but yeah, I think I'm just like, it's it's a bit of like a movement of balance. What do you what do you think? Does that like make any sense? Yeah, it does. But I think it's like kind of like um who was it? Audrey Lord talking about like how rest is a like radical act and obviously she's talking about a very specific place and time um that I think often gets used <laughs> like that phrase often gets used as to be like self-care. It's really important, but like really you're just like buying stuff and consumerism and it's like white women being like I need time for myself. I don't have time to like whatever. But (laughs) in this situation, I think Rosalind is always putting everyone else before herself. And like the risk of that is that, you know, she's immortal right now. But like she literally mentions like if someone cut off her head, she would not survive. So I think sometimes like you do have to take care of yourself first so that you could take care of someone else. It's like I think my father-in-law always says this, like, you have to put on, like, when you're on a plane and the plane, like, the oxygen mask drop down, like, you have to put on your own mask before you can help someone else. (laughs) Otherwise, you can't help anyone. So I think that's kind of, like, what Orion is getting at. Like, if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of anyone. (sighs) It's so true. 
and yet it's so complicated. <laughs> and I wish Rosalind luck on her journey because <laughs> I can only imagine the feelings of shame and guilt that will come up when she starts putting her needs above everyone else's. And it's not going to yeah. be easy for her. Ask her how I know. Anyway. <laughs> As I was reading this book, I was reading some Mary Oliver and I found a poem that literally is about this exact same thing. Can I read it to you? Sure. It's called The Journey, and it's from her collection Dreamwork from 1986. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. I read that and I was like, oh my God, I literally just read this other passage in this other book. It could not be more perfect. Yeah, they go together really well. There you go. Mend my life. Each voice cried. It's mm -hmm. so true. All of that, that cacophony is out there, y'all. Yeah. Protect your yeah. energy. <laughs> Should we do a few card questions? I see you have we'll them on hand. I know. They're so prepared. What's going on? New year. Same me. <laughs> <laughs> How do the principal antagonists in the book view the world differently? I would say like the imperialist antagonists, the Japanese imperialist antagonists view the people and resources, like the Chinese people, resources, like land, etc., as like available for plunder and exploitation rather than the protagonists who are trying to like have the Chinese people like retain agency yeah. over their lives, basically, yeah. you know? Create a better world. Yeah, good answer. I agree. <laughs> this is like a totally not about the book but it says, what do you enjoy about reading? Is it too broad? Oh, <laughs> oh interesting. Am I just like getting out of my head for a little while? It's fun to like, you know, live other experience, other lives in, in my books. Mm -hmm. A reader lives a thousand lives, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Last one. What value does this book have for contemporary society? I like that question. Definitely in discussions of like mis disinformation, propaganda, mm, countries thinking they have the right to the people, I guess. Yeah, I would agree. And I, I think it also, I hope other authors do their own take on what Gong has done, you know, like find mm -hmm. a space time that's super interesting to them, that is relevant to their experience. And then, like, I don't know make some sort of like science fiction or fantasy syncretism with it because I feel like yeah it lets you explore all these different nuances about like people's motivations and things that like I guess like enlivens history in a way that you know we can sometimes like relegate it to a textbook page and be like one paragraph this happened China is communist yeah. now you know yeah. whereas like oh it's so different it's like actually so complicated okay we did it 
We did it. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Library Coven. We'll be back in two weeks for a discussion of The Girl from the Sea by Molly Knox Ostertag. As always, we love to be in conversation with you magical folks. Let us know what you think of the episode, anything we missed, or just say hi by dropping a line in the comments or by reaching out to us on Instagram at the Library Coven. You know that you should obviously subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast because then you never miss a show when it comes up in your feed. Um, and we'd also really appreciate it if you rate and review and spread the word to other people who you think would enjoy it. If you're able to support our labor financially, you can make a one-time donation to us on Coffee, and you can support us monthly on Patreon or by shopping at our bookshop.org affiliate page. Until next time, stay magical. Stay magical.